All right, so last week uh, we took a little bit of a break and uh, did something different through our time together, uh, going through um, scripture and prayer and song. Um, today we're going to uh, jump back in on our series through the book of Jonah, um, and we've been going through it um, at, a, at a pretty slow pace uh, for a book of only four chapters. We are on week seven, and uh, we will finish up next week, so we still have a little bit more time uh, going through the book of Jonah. But I think uh, it has been um, a great conversation, at least for me in my time. Uh, it's, it's been good for me. Um, hopefully it's been good for you as well. Um, we definitely need to come with our closed-toe shoes, right? Um, so hopefully you're not wearing your sandals today. Um, you've got these closed-toe shoes because um, the prophets like to step on our toes, right? Uh, they like to, to challenge us and make us uncomfortable and, and create this this tension that we have to wrestle with. And, and Jonah is full of these tensions that we have to deal with, uh, these, these difficult things that we have to wrestle with. And as we get into chapter 4 today, we're going to see that um, in even more detail than, than where we've been before. Um, go ahead and uh, be turning your Bibles to chapter 4 of Jonah, and that's where we're going to be at this morning. As we've been going through the story of Jonah, it is, it's this familiar story, right? There's the prophet of Jonah who is um, called by God to go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, heck no, and I'm going the opposite direction, right? I'm going to be running away from, from what God has called me to, and I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction, and so that, of course, does not go well for Jonah, right? He's on this boat sailing away from the mission of God, and this great storm comes, and, and the other sailors on the ship are trying to, to figure out what's going on. Why is, why is this storm taking over their boat? Obviously, someone's God is not happy, and so they determine that it is Jonah who is to blame for this storm that they are in. And so Jonah suggests that they throw him overboard to calm the storm. And so they throw him overboard, and yes, the storm is calmed. And here Jonah is sinking to the depths of the sea, and a fish comes along and swallows Jonah whole. And Jonah lives in the stomach of this fish for three days. And it's from the inside of this fish that Jonah sings this incredible song of thanksgiving. Not repentance, but thanksgiving for God. And at the conclusion of this song that Jonah is praying, the fish vomits him up and he lands on dry lands. And then yet again, God calls him to go to Nineveh. This time, Jonah has learned enough of his lesson to actually be obedient to God's call. And so he continues on to Nineveh, maybe dragging his feet a bit continues to Nineveh, goes into the city, preaches this four or five word sermon. English adds a few extra words to it, but the, the sermon is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And it's this sermon that has such incredible impact on the community. It should have taken him three days to get through the entire city, going neighborhood to neighborhood. And here he is, day one, the response is incredible. Day one, with this five-word sermon, the people respond, they repent, they, they call for this fast, and, and put on, putting, on on, of sa putting on of sackcloth, which represents repentance, the city has been overturned but they have been overturned into repenting to God, not being destroyed in the way 
that Jonah had anticipated. And so chapter 3 concludes with the people repenting and God having compassion on them. Destruction is not for them that day. Even the king is convinced and calls for this great fast to happen. And so we think that the story should end there. Great preacher, great preaching, successful sermon, the city turns, we're done, right? No, the story continues. Into chapter 4, starting in verse 1. But to Jonah, this, everything we just said, the city turning, God showing compassion, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Remember the first time he was called, still at home? That is what I tried to foretell by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? This is quite an unexpected shift of events, right? This is like the best day for a preacher, Like, it's completely successful with minimal words. Here he is with this successful mission into Nineveh, and he's angry, and he's depressed, and he's discouraged, and he just wants to end his life. What God has done is wrong in his minds. What is going on with Jonah here? There's obviously something that goes beyond just what is happening with Nineveh and the Ninevites. There's something going on here between God and Jonah. What is this complicated relationship over these last four chapters? Assyria was this great world power. It was also the cruelest. It was was understandable, as we talked about weeks ago. It was understandable that Jonah wouldn't want to go to this place. It was dangerous. This is a a terrorist state, and God is calling him to go here. Of course, Jonah doesn't want to be a part of that. And so when Jonah finally does go there, there's this this mass repentance and, and this incredible turn of events. And God's mercy, which we should be celebrating, is shown to the Ninevites. It's all quite shocking, we would expect the, to- the story to go in a different direction. We-, we would expect the story to conclude at the end of chapter 3 with great success. Here, Jonah is angry. Jonah is upset. Who would be angry at such great success? Things have gone well, and here he is angry. Jonah had just preached to his toughest audience. And yet he's discouraged. That audience has responded positively. Even the king responds. What incredible missionary success. And so what is Jonah's problem? Chapter 2, where where Jonah is praying and singing in in the belly of the fish, gives us some insight into what the problem is here. What what is going on? He says in in verse 2 of chapter 4, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
we have this picture here where Jonah is going back in time, referencing this time where he first ran from God's call. And Jonah's saying something like this. He's saying something like, I just knew you might do something like this. I just knew it. You were going to do something like this. These people are evil, and they only change because they're scared of destruction. They didn't convert and start worshiping you. They merely promised to start changing, and you bestow mercy on them for that? I knew you would do something like this. It's good that you're a God of mercy, but you've gone too far this time. This is Jonah's attitude. Your mercy, God, has gone too far. These are the enemies, and yet you show them mercy. Now, now Jonah addresses God here with with the title Lord, with, with the word Yahweh. It's this covenant name of God. A God who promised to preserve Israel. God who promised to protect Israel and to show show mercy to others and accomplish his purposes through them. And so how could God keep his promise to Israel to preserve them? How could he keep the promise to, to protect them and at the same time show mercy to their enemies? These are enemies of Israel. And here God is risking the safety of Israel, risking the protection of Israel for the sake of the enemy. How could God do this? How can he claim to be a God of justice while also allowing evil and violence to go unpunished? And Jonah can't reconcile this. Honestly, it's hard for us to reconcile this. To him, there appears to be this contradiction between the justice of God and the love of God. How do these two things coexist? And this is the tension that is existing within Jonah and often exists within us. How can God be just? And how can God love and show mercy? But this goes beyond just an intellectual problem, right? Like we we can argue intellectually through the idea of God's love and justice. This is more than just an intellectual pursuit for Jonah. There is something deeply rooted in his heart that he is dealing with in this. As he's confronted with a merciful God that is extending compassion to Jonah's enemy, he doesn't know how to process this. He doesn't know what to do with this. And so he is angry. And he is in despair. And it's better for him just to end it all than to deal with this tension that is existing between his understanding of God and what he's actually seeing God do in the world around him. There is such despair that he is just done. And so this intellectual problem that Jonah has with God is is playing itself out in how Jonah is behaving See, what we believe about God is going to impact our behavior, right? How we treat others, how we interact with the world around us, how we process through grief and despair, how we process through any situation in life is going to be based on what we really believe. Not what we intellectually say what we believe, but what in our heart we really believe about others, what we really believe about God. Those things will play themselves out 
in our behavior. And that's what we see happening in Jonah, that his behavior is playing out in, the, in what he believes. But what he believes is misdirected. What he believes about who God is and what he believes about justice and love and mercy and compassion, what he believes about those things is out of order. And so his behavior is out of order. His anger is out of order. His despair is out of order. When we say something like, I won't serve you unless you do X. I won't serve you, God. I won't follow through on this. I won't do this unless X. Then now X becomes your God. That is the idolatry in our lives. When something else supersedes our relationship with God, that this thing will dictate what my relationship with God really is. And so Jonah is saying to God, I have no source of meaning. I have no source of joy. He's saying that, that to God, the one who he should, he's saying this to God, the one that should be producing meaning in his life. And he's telling God, I have no meaning in my life because what I think about your justice and what I think about your love is not matching what you're doing and what I'm witnessing. And so now his meaning is lost. His meaning should be coming from God. His identity should be coming from God. But instead, it's coming from this other thing that he's holding on to. Nineveh's repentance was pleasing to God. This is what God wanted. He wanted to overturn the city which didn't have to mean destruction. Remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the overturning having two different meanings. That overturning can mean destruction, but overturning can also mean repentance. He does want them overturned. But in the overturning of God, there is always an option and an availability for hope and compassion, for mercy. God wants to overturn all of us. And he wants us to rely on his mercy and his compassion in that overturning. And so what is it that is going on with Jonah here? By not destroying Nineveh, by extending compassion to Nineveh, in many ways God is actually putting Israel's national interests at risk. Their enemy could have been destroyed, but now the enemy has been spared. And so what does this do to the security of Israel? What does this do to their national interest? And so which is the more important choice for Jonah? Celebrating what pleases God or protecting his na national interests? Which of those two is more important? Well, Jonah chooses the protection of national interests over celebrating what pleases God. And so anyone who, who cared for their own country would have been anxious about Assyria's survival. They are the terrorist state. They are the enemy. They should be destroyed. And so for them to not be destroyed is going to create great anxiety in them. You can't really fault Jonah for this emotion. But given the choice between loyalty to God and given the choice of the security of Israel, Jonah chooses to push God away for the benefit of national security. 
And so this goes beyond just a love for country or patriotism. It goes to the deification of it, that now love for country is above God. Patriotism is above God. That is now the God. Nationalism is now the God. And so a love for country is fine. Don't get me wrong. Patriotism is fine. We can celebrate who we are as Americans or whatever country you come from. We can celebrate that. We can have pride in that. But we can't put that above God. We cannot have the deification of our patriotism. One has to be subservient to the other. And we often make choices that get those out of order, just like Jonah. Jonah gets it out of order. He still loves God. He still believes in God. He still honors God. But there's this other thing, this X, this thing that is a little bit more important. This other thing that, that takes more priority in his emotion, in his behavior, in his Facebook posts. <laughs> and so, if love for your country's interests leads you to the exploitation of people, or in the case of Jonah, leads you to root for an entire class of people to be spiritually lost, then your love for country is more than your love for God. That's idolatry. And so Jonah was a missionary. He, he should have been glad that the Ninevites were moving toward God. Jonah should have stayed and continued to teach about who God is and, and what life with God was like. Yes, they're making this move towards God, open door. But instead, Jonah does what? He goes outside of the city and sits and pouts and watches from the sidelines waiting for it all to fail. Waiting for it all to crumble, hoping that maybe God will come through and punish who he thought should be punished. Or maybe, maybe even wait for the Ninevites to go to their old ways and just sit back and say, I told you so. Oh, we'd love to sit out on the sidelines and wait for those I told you so moments. Instead of actively being involved in what God is doing. Instead of being, in the move, being a part of the move of God through the Ninevites. We want to sit on the back sidelines and critique from our armchairs and critique through our social media. Jonah was angry. He was angry that they moved toward God. Here are his enemies moving towards God, and he's angry that God would show compassion on his enemy. And so instead of going back into the city, he just sits on the sidelines waiting for judgment to happen. Tim Keller describes it this way in reflecting on this passage. He says, When Christian believers care more for their own interests and security than for the good and salvation of other races and ethnicities, they are sinning like Jonah. 
if they value the economic and military flourishing of their country over the good of the human race and the furtherance of God's work in the world, they are sinning like Jonah. Their identity is more rooted in their race and nationality than in being saved sinners and children of God. Jonah's rightful love for his country and people had become inordinate, too great, rivaling God. Rightful racial pride can become racism. Rightful national pride and patriotism can become imperialism. Powerful words there. As we look at the story of Jonah and look at how our priorities become inordinate, that what we believe about God and what we believe about country have gotten backwards. What we believe about God and what we believe about race have become inordinate. That yes, we can celebrate. Yes, we can have appropriate pride in what is going on in our country. We can have a sense of, of national identity. But when that becomes inordinate to the kingdom of God, that is for all people in all places, then our worship has gone the wrong direction. Jonah's beliefs about God are, are incorrect. And so he's behaving incorrectly. He criticizes God and he uses God's own words against him to create his defense. He says in verse 6, he says, um, or actually, he, he's referencing Exodus chapter 34 in these verses here. Exodus chapter 34 says, And he passed in front of them, he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Jonah uses these words, but he uses them selectively. He doesn't continue on to the verses that follow. He's justifying himself, but he forgets that in the second part of verse 7 that God says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so Jonah has this simplistic view of God, this, this simplistic perspective of God, this picture of God who loves everyone without judgment. He has tipped the scale of God's justice and God's love. And he uses God's own words to justify his anger, to justify his outrage. I'm sure it's not difficult for us to quickly imagine using the Bible selectively and out of context to defend our case. Can you imagine such a thing ever happening? No, surely not. Surely we would not use verses out of context to defend our position. Surely we would not go to Scripture and use God's words against him. Oh, we're all so guilty of that, unfortunately. And so Jonah is using God's words selectively. And we often pick and choose ver verses to fit our position. And so if we are reading the Bible, now this is going to step on a lot of toes, especially for our heritage, right? We like to have the right answers, right? Yes. We want to have the correct answers 
and our answer is the correct answer, right? Your answer might not be, but my answer is the correct answer. This is our heritage in churches of Christ, and many other churches struggle with this as well. We want to be right in our reading of Scripture. And so whenever we go to a verse and say, aha, I'm right, we have just put ourselves in a position of self-righteousness. A position where we are the ones defining and not God. If we're using the Bible to feel righteous and wise in our own eyes, then be warned in Proverbs 26. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. We do not go to the Bible to be wise in our own eyes. Yes, we go to the Bible as authoritative word from God, but we also approach Scripture with great humility. That these are the words of God and not our words. And so we feel more righteous as we read the Bible. And if we feel more righteous when we read the Bible, then we're not reading it correctly. Reading the Bible correctly will humble us, it will encourage us, it will challenge us, it will create tensions for us, it will create dissonance within us. We will read of God's love and justice and scratch our heads. We will read of God's love and grace and take encouragement in that, even in spite of our flaws. One theologian put it this way, he said, for, for what the Bible teaches us about ourselves is all to the effect that we are not righteous, that we have no means of justifying ourselves, that we have no right to condemn others and be in the right against them, and that only a gracious act of God can save us. That is what Scripture teaches us. And if we stick to this, Reading the Bible is useful and healthy and brings forth fruit in us. And so if we're using the Bible to boost our correctness and our righteousness, if we're using it to judge others and point the finger, if we're using it to create division, then we are twisting the message of God. And this is what Jonah is doing. He's using Scripture to not... The, the, his use of scripture is not bringing him joy, but it's taking him to this place of despair, this place of self-righteousness. And so we should have seen this coming in chapter 2 when he's singing inside of the fish. Jonah ran from the mission of God in the first place because he thought God would be merciful. And he didn't think God should be merciful when Jonah thought God, he, he thought God should have punished the Ninevites. And in chapter 2, Jonah finds himself in this position now of needing God's mercy. He's in the belly of the fish. He needs God's mercy. It's amazing how things change when we need something, right? And so here he is in this position of needing God's mercy after he has been running from God's mercy. And so he calls out to God, cries out to God for his mercy mercy. But he ends his prayer in this interesting and unfortunate way. 
He ends his song and his plea for mercy by comparing himself to the pagan idol worshipers. He says, at least I'm not as bad as them. Right? So now I am more worthy of God's mercy. I should be saved from this. I am more worthy because at least I'm not like them. So even in this humble position of being inside a fish where he should be taken down to his lowest level, he still is not all the way down. He has not gotten to the depths of his heart issue that says, I am nothing and God is everything. He's not gotten to that heart position to say, I am unworthy and I am completely dependent on the mercy of God. He's still saying, there's a part of me that's still playing a role in this. I still have this part that makes me better. I still have this pedigree, this race, this experience, this lifestyle, this thing that makes me better and more deserving of God's mercy. But God still shows him the mercy, which is what is so beautiful about God's grace. That even when we have not gotten to the depths of our hearts, that really put God where God is supposed to be. He still shows us that grace in spite of ourselves. Jonah's understanding of grace still needs to go deeper. He's still justifying himself. He's still presenting himself in the self-righteous way, comparing himself to others, elevating himself above others, misusing God's word and his idea of who God should be. When Interstate 79 was being built, going from Pittsburgh to Lake Erie, um, there was a segment of this road that got stalled and delayed. I can't imagine construction delays. Wah, wah. Um, but they were trying to cross a swamp, right? And so they would put these pilings down to, to create this bridge over the swamp, and they would get down what, to what they would think was bedrock, and then it would give way again. And so they'd have to drill deeper, and then it would give way again, and they would have to drill deeper until they finally got to the real bedrock to be able to build this bridge on a stable foundation. And for us, we've drilled down to a certain degree, right? And we think we've gotten to that place of bedrock. But then something comes along and that kind of gives way. And we have to drill a little bit deeper. And we think we understand God's grace and then a crisis comes and we have to drill a little bit deeper. We think we understand God's grace and who we are, but then that illness comes or that job comes or lack of job or that situation, something comes along and suddenly what we thought was bedrock in our belief of who God was breaks loose and we continue to drill deeper finding out who God is. And so Jonah's heart, just like all of our hearts, has to go deeper to the bedrock of God's grace. When we say, God, I'll obey you if, I will go there when, I will do this if, 
then we're putting something else as foundational to our joy and our security. We're, we're putting our faith in something else. Not the bedrock of God's grace. As long as something is more important than God in our hearts, we, like Jonah, will struggle through self-righteousness and pride. It will create fear and insecurity in us. We will be overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and despair. Tim Keller again, to reach heart bedrock with God's grace is to recognize all the ways that we make good things into idols and ways of saving ourselves. It is to instead finally recognize that we live wholly by God's grace. Then we, bring, then we begin serving the Lord, not in order to get things from him, but just for him, for his own sake, just for who he is, for the joy of knowing him, delighting him, and becoming like him. When we've reached bedrock with God's grace, it begins to drain us slowly and surely of both self-righteousness and fear. And so what is it that we're in love with? What is it that gives us that sense of security? That sense of identity? It's probably something that's good, which is what disguises it so well. Those good things in our lives that have become inordinate to the grace of God. Out of order, out of priority, out of place. Many good things in our lives. Careers and family, homes and security, education. All good things. Our knowledge of scripture, our study of scripture, our involvement in church, our presence here today. All good things. The relationships that we're forming, the conversations that we're having. The people that we know, all good things. But when those become the first things, that's when things have gotten out of order. The things that Jonah loves, those are counterfeit gods. And so what are the counterfeit gods in our own lives? Where is God's grace in our lives? in our lives and what is at the bedrock of our hearts let's be standing together let's not be committed to the wrong things let's continue to drill down deeper to get to the bedrock of our hearts and be aware enough when things are cracking and crumbling around that so that we know it's time to drill deeper and don't be afraid of drilling deeper. We're going to spend some time in prayer, a time in communion, a time of, of reflecting on, on who Jesus is and the incredible gift that we have and a chance to, to reflect on what is at the bedrock of our hearts. 
as we approach the table, it is a, a time for us to ask the question, where's my bedrock? What needs to go deeper? Where do I need to drill down further? What is that thing that I'm holding on to as a, as, as a sense of identity, a sense of security that I need to let go of? Or maybe it's something to hold on to because it's a good thing, but we just need to reprioritize it. It's taken on too much of a, a priority in our lives. It's become first instead of subservient to the grace of God. And so we'll have shepherds down front. This is a time for you to, to pray with one another, pray as a family, pray as a life group, go to the tables together, share in communion with one another, remind each other of, of who you are and who we follow and what our priorities are in our lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for, for this time. God, I thank you for the story of Jonah. Um, God, I'm thankful for thick shoes. Um, God, help us to, to be convicted and challenged where appropriate. God, I pray against any sense of guilt and shame that, that you, the Spirit comes in to, to convict us but does not bring shame. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. May we rest in that, find security in that, find identity in that, and that alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray.